welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We come now to chapter, 20, uh, to chapter 42, and I want to read a couple of portions as we begin. Verses 1 through 9 read like this. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will, not, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out... Joy bells. Excuse me. My um, iPad last week played up and I thought I had it sussed. I obviously didn't. Who spreads out... The earth with all its springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. And then moving down to verse 18, it says, Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like my messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or play close attention in time to come. Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his laws. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. When you're studying a book or any particular text and trying to come to terms with its meaning, one of the first things you do is you look for either repeated themes or perhaps repeated words that might help unlock the author's intention. One of the most often repeated words in the book of Isaiah, one of the themes that emerges is this idea of a servant or of servanthood. The word servant occurs 38 times in the book of Isaiah. It's a key element to Isaiah. One of the commentaries that I've been using in my preparation is a two-volume series by John Oswalt from the New International Commentary series on the Old Testament. And he basically divides the whole of Isaiah up into sections that focus around the theme of servanthood. For example, he says as I said to you, that chapters 1 to 5 are a prologue, they're an introduction to the book. In chapter 6, you have the call to servanthood. Chapters 
7 through 39 are all about whom shall I trust or whom shall we trust, which he says is the basis for servanthood. Then from chapters 40 to 45 to 55 is the vocation of servanthood, and then the marks of servanthood from chapters 56 to 66. Now all that just simply to say that you can see emerging from the book of Isaiah this theme, this word, this concept of servanthood. It certainly comes to the fore in the portion of Isaiah that we now find ourselves in. And I've just listed from Isaiah 41 through Isaiah 53 the number of times it, come, it comes up. Um, as I was thinking about this word servant and servanthood, it strikes me that it's a concept, though not completely disappeared, it is a concept that is disappearing from our language and our culture. For many of us, it tends to carry negative connotations in our democratic, so-called classless, egalitarian culture doesn't like the idea of subservience that it implies. To us postmoderns, that's a completely unacceptable notion. The days of Downton Abbey and upstairs-downstairs are gone, and apart from being relatively happy to watch it on TV from an acceptable distance, most of us would say good riddance. We aren't so far removed from the, from the word that we've, that we've lost the meaning. I think most people still have some kind of concept of what servanthood means. We know that a servant is a person who is at the disposal of somebody else to obey their will, to do their work, and to represent their interests. Now, much of the Old Testament narrative, much of the Old Testament story concerns God's election of the people Israel to be his servant nation on behalf of the nations of the world. They were to be a people at his disposal, to obey his will, to do his work, to represent his interests on the earth for the sake of the nations. What God wanted from these people actually is outlined in verse 21 of Isaiah 42 where it says in the Living Bible, the Lord has magnified his law and made it truly glorious. Through it he planned to show the world that he's righteous. So God delegated and partnered with the nation of Israel the responsibility to magnify Yahweh's teaching and to make it glorious to the nations of the earth. Israel were called by God to be his instrument, servant nation, through whom God could reveal himself to all of the other peoples of the earth. We could say in this, at this point in God's purposes for the earth that God so loved the world that he sent Israel. And through them, he planned to make his law glorious and reveal his righteousness. The calling that Israel had was a missionary task. It was to be performed by the power of a divine attraction that would rest on them. They would be a magnetic people, as it were, and people would be drawn to them. And we see this outlined in scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 say, Pay attention, I'm teaching you the rules and regulations that God commanded me so that you may live by them in the land you're entering to take up ownership. Keep them, practice them, you'll become, a wise, you'll become wise and understanding. And when people hear and see what's going on, they'll say, what a great nation. So wise, so understanding. We've never seen anything like it. And we saw this in vision form also in Isaiah chapter 2 with the nation streaming up the mountains and saying that they were uh, going 
up the mountain of the Lord where they would be taught the ways of God in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Now, things didn't unfold as, as uh, God had purposed. We, we know that. So verse 21 of Isaiah 42 is the purpose to make the law of the Lord glorious, to let his Torah, his teachings, reach out to the nation. But verses 22 through 25 actually tell us what happened. It says, but what a sight this people are. These who were to demonstrate to all the world the glory of his law, for they are robbed, enslaved, imprisoned, trapped, fair game for all with none to protect them. Won't even one of you apply these lessons from the past and see the ruin that awaits you up ahead? Who let Israel be robbed and hurt? Did not the Lord? Is the Lord they, it is the Lord they sinned against, for they would not go where he sent them nor listen to his laws. This is why God poured out such fury and wrath on his people and destroyed them in battle. Yet though, he set fire, though, yet though set on fire and burned, they will not understand the reason why that is... Uh, that it is God wanting them to repent. So called to be a missionary nation, they refused to go where they were sent. They did not make the law and the teachings of God glorious. As, an, as a result of this disobedience and rebellion, this elect people lost their distinctive and protective status, and they're carried away into exile, broken, humiliated, and enslaved. As they are in this captivity and they contemplate the decades of their, uh, their captivity, and God's apparent silence, they had proposed some reasons for their plight. And it was a classic case of blame shifting. Rather than say, we're here because we sinned, they took up the Eve made me do it syndrome and blamed everybody else, including God, for the situation they now found themselves in. A bit like Proverbs chapter 19, where it says it's a man's stupidity that ruins his life, and he's bitter against the Lord. And that's exactly where these people are. They complained that Yahweh wasn't strong enough, that he didn't care enough, that he was unjust, and that he was capricious. So in verse 24, Yahweh engages with them through Isaiah, and essentially he says this, okay, I agree with you that I am behind what you are experiencing. However, it isn't a result of divine weakness or divine apathy or divine injustice. The captivity that you find yourself in is your fault, not mine. You would not walk in my ways. You would not obey me. You, you say God is deaf to our cries and blind to our needs, because that is what they were saying. Isaiah 40, 27 is an example of the cry that was continually coming from them. And they were saying, God doesn't care. He's blind. He's deaf. A little bit like Psalm 44, 23, where it says, Waken, rouse yourself. Don't sleep, O Lord. Are we cast off forever? Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our sorrows and oppressions? And God again says to them, I agree with you. Blindness and deafness is the problem. But the record needs to be clarified and set straight as to who is the one affected by these things. It is not me, Israel. It is you that is blind and deaf. Verse 18 of 40, Isaiah 42. Oh, how blind and deaf you are toward God. Why won't you listen? Why won't you see? Who in all the world is as blind as my own people, who are designed to be my messengers of truth? Who is so blind as my dedicated one, the servant of the Lord? You see and understand what is right, but you won't heed nor do it. You hear, but you won't listen. In this passage, God displays this amazing condescension a willingness to actually enter into the push and pull of a genuine relationship with Israel. 
Israel is in this place where they're disappointed and angry with God, and they don't hold back in expressing it. Well, God displays the freedom to express, express those very same emotions and passions right back. And this is almost like listening into a marital dispute where one spouse says to the other, I'm really angry with you. And the other one says, you're angry with me. What a cheek. Let me tell you a thing or two. And this is, the, this is what's going on between them. Through the open expression of such genuine feelings, both sides bring their beings into relationship. It's raw conflict, and it happens in relationships, as we all know. Israel does not hide. There's no religious sanitized response. It's raw and real. But you know what? Ultimately, any reconciliation and healing requires that kind of honesty. There are some people, possibly even here this morning, who will never find hurt, uh, will never find healings for the hurts that they have endured because they refuse to honestly face the fact that actually they're really ticked with God. They're really angry with God. An abuse victim who says, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you stop it? You're all powerful. You're all knowing why. And it sounds exactly like Israel. What about that accident that happened? Why didn't God stop it? What about that failed business venture or that broken relationship? And these people want to scream, where were you? Why didn't you do something to stop it? Don't you care? Aren't you able this is exactly Israel's complaint. Now, a lot of people feel those feelings but are too religious to actually verbalize them. Israel, Israel aren't too religious. They, they scream. And I want to tell you something. God's up for it. He can do raw. He's good at relationships. Israel screams and God pushes back. Now, in this particular instance, hear me please hear, in this particular instance, I'm not suggesting in all instances by any means, please do not hear me saying that that abuse or that accident or that failed business or relationship was a result of your sin. However, in this instance, that's exactly what it was. In this instance, Israel had failed. The situation that they were in had been caused by their own disobedience and by their own rebellion. And you never get out of exile until you understand and correctly locate the cause and turn from it. What was required from the people here was repentance. Repentance was needed, but it wasn't forthcoming. Verse 25 says, Yet those set on fire and burned, they will not understand the reason why, that it is God wanting them to repent. So there we have it, the incredibly sad state of God's servant Israel. This servant has failed spectacularly. They haven't been a missionary nation. They turned in upon themselves. They tried to make Yahweh a national deity, not interested in the rest of the world, but he was. What's going to happen now to God's purposes and God's promises? Paul echoes that question, by the way, in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, does this mean that God's so fed up with Israel that he'll have nothing more to do with them? Well, in short, the answer is no. But the answer does head off in a direction that actually no one anticipated. From chapters 42 onward, Isaiah begins to, speak, begins to speak about the emergence of a mysterious figure that he simply calls Yahweh's servant, my servant. 
And it's this one that will fulfill the purposes of God and the promises of God. It's this one who will obey his will and represent his interests. And this servant is progressively revealed in a series of of passages that we call the servant songs. The first is Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 to 9, that I read to you. The second is found in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. The third in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. And the fourth and final song is Isaiah 52, verse 13, through to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Now, I think I've mentioned this before, but the huge debate in Isaiahic scholarship takes place around the identity of this mysterious figure. I talked about it just before Easter where we started to unpack the servant's song somewhat. I don't plan to go over all that ground again. I want to cut to the quick, and I'll tell, I'll tell you why I'm going straight to that point. I think these servant songs reveal Israel's Messiah. I believe that Messiah to be Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. I believe that's what the New Testament tells us. The reason I go straight there and cut to the quick through the masses of Isaiahic scholarship is basically that I believe as we come to the New Testament, we see really clearly that Jesus becomes the hermeneutical key by which we read the whole of the Scriptures. Greg Boyd makes this comment. He says, Christ must be the spectacles that we wear as we read the Old Testament. So my commitment here is that as I read the Old Testament, and particularly these servant songs, I'm reading them with Jesus' spectacles. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40, Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees. And they're talking about, you know, well, we, we, Moses we know, but we don't know who you are. Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures, the scriptures, for you believe that they give you eternal life. And the scriptures point to me. And yet you won't come to me so that I can give you this Life eternal. And then a little bit later on in verses 46 and 47, he says, For you've refused to believe Moses. He wrote about me, but you refused to believe him. So you refuse to believe in me. And since you don't believe what he wrote, no wonder you don't believe in me either. Jesus is making an incredible claim here. He is claiming to be nothing less than the very subject matter, in fact, the very life of the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying, everything that Moses wrote was about me. <clears throat> Graham Goldsworthy says, Jesus is the central subject matter of the Hebrew Scriptures. All texts in the whole Bible bear a discernible relationship to Christ and are primarily intended to be a, a, as a testimony to Christ. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking on the way to Emmaus with two disciples. And then it says, Jesus said to them, you are such foolish, foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in Scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering, in, uh, entering his time of glory? Then Jesus quoted them passage after passage from the writings of the prophets, beginning with the book of Genesis and going right on through the Scriptures, explaining what the passages meant and what they said about himself. Here's that same claim. The Old Testament is about me. And then a little later on in that passage, he says, When I was with you before, don't you remember me telling you that everything was written about me by Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms? It must all come true. Then he opened their mind to understand at last these many scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again from the dead 
on the third day. So Jesus quotes passage after passage from Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, which is the Hebrew way of saying the Old Testament scriptures that we know. Now clearly, the early believers following Jesus' instruction began to read the Old Testament with Christological spectacles, as it were. They immediately identified Isaiah's servant songs with and to Jesus. These servant songs were decisive in, their, in, in shaping their developing understanding of Jesus' person and mission. In the book of Acts, for example, four times in the space of two chapters, Jesus is called the servant of God. This is a, an echo of Isaiah. So in Acts 3.13, Acts 3.26, Acts 4.27, and Acts 4.30, all of those passages talk about the servant Jesus. This is an echo of Isaiah's mysterious servant of the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, Paul is outlining Jesus' person and mission, and some scholars think that he's quoting some kind of doctrinal hymn that was in common use in the early church, and it says, and he took the form of a servant. In Acts chapter 8, I've mentioned this before, but you have the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading from the passage in Isaiah, the servant song, the fourth servant song, and uh, Philip comes alongside, and, and he says to Philip, of whom does the prophet say this? And it says, Philip gets up and explains Jesus to him, out of the servant songs. The servant songs are identified with Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Uh, four times the servant songs are mentioned describing Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 8, 17, Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, and John 12, 38, they all quote the fourth servant song, the passage in Isaiah 53. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, quote Isaiah 42 that we read this morning. I think, having said that, that I have strong biblical warrant to go back to these servant songs and look at them with Jesus' spectacles. So Isaiah 42 then starts off where Isaiah firstly speaks of the servant of the Lord and then speaks to the servant of the Lord. In this passage, he starts with his task rather than his identity. Perhaps the nature of the task actually will be a key in the revelation of his identity as we move forward. But he starts off and he says... Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now, some of you will immediately recognize that some of those words were the very words that were spoken by the Father over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son in whom I delight. This is an echo of the servant passage. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. By the word, that, the way, that word uphold in the Hebrew is a very strong word. It means to grip fast or tight. God is clearly the source of all that this servant is called to be and do. And he's called and empowered by God's spirit. But to do what? Well, verse 1 says he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verses 3 and 4 Four says, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice till he establishes justice on the earth. The Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat. And, and what it does is it indicates that there's a moral foundation upon which reality rests. 
There's a right way and a wrong way to live life. Those who repudiate mishpat and, and violate mishpat and violate this moral foundation introduce evil into the world. And this servant has come to right the wrongs. He will reflect God's moral, compassionate character. He'll care for the needy and the vulnerable. He's going to set things to right. And verse 4 says, Far-flung oceans wait expectantly for his teaching. His task is to bring forth justice and to allow the teaching, the, the Hebrew word is the Torah, Mishpat and Torah. These words are very strong words that come out of the Pentateuch, out of Moses' five books. When you read Moses' books, key words that emerge again and again are those two words. Mishpat, justice, the moral foundation of all of reality, and Torah, the teachings of the Lord. Now remember, that was Israel's task. As a missionary nation, as the servant of the Lord, they were to magnify the law and make it glorious and show the world that there was a moral foundation to it, that, that God was a just God. Those two concepts, mishpat and Torah, are classic words and concepts of, from Moses. Now remember, what, what we're seeing here as we're reading this first servant song is, is a wallpaper behind it, as it were, that is flashing Pentateuch, Moses. Now remember, Moses was the one who promised that God would raise up a prophet just like him. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. I think that wallpaper background of the Pentateuch with Mishpat and Torah as it's picked up in Isaiah is saying something about this is the one Moses spoke of. Here he is, my servant. Now, there's an obvious difference between Moses and this servant, and it, the difference is in the scope and reach of their ministries. Moses' calling was to Israel. This servant's ministry is to reach the nations and the islands of the world. And it says of him, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light to the Gentiles. The, the promise is that this servant will be a covenant to the peoples. That, by the way, is repeated in the second servant song in Isaiah 49, verse 8. But he will become the means by which people will be able to come into a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Simeon picks up on that very idea as he's holding the baby Jesus in the temple. He says, he will be a light to the Gentile nations. That's straight out of the servant song. So here then we have the new Moses the one who will lead the people of God into a new and greater exodus. The manner in which the servant carries out his task of bringing Mishpat and Torah to the nations is surprising. Very, very countercultural, both then and now, because it says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter nor be discouraged. The servant bears witness to Yahweh and his ways with a quiet, gentle patience. He is confident that the nations will be drawn to God's reign of justice, not by the dint of human force or raw human power, but by the power of attraction embodied in compassion and righteousness. Now this is either complete naivety or f and foolishness or absolute genius. And I think Mahatma Gandhi 
and Martin Luther King, whose accomplishments were built around the example and teachings of Jesus, prophetically outlined in Isaiah 42, would suggest the latter. It's pure genius. These words, by the way, are directly attributed to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. He won't, he won't be crying out. Jesus was incredibly unostentatious, unself-advertising. He doesn't cry out, and the idea in the Hebrew seems to be he doesn't shout down people. He doesn't dominate with words. He doesn't shout down other voices. You know what? In this world, there's more than one way to be violent. You don't have to be physically violent. A person who might never contemplate raising his fist to a family member can nonetheless be verbally cruel and violent in the words that they speak, where they shout down other people or they put down other people with the cleverness of their words. It's saying Jesus does not function like that. Once you move toward power, whether it is the power of fists or armies or words, you have betrayed your calling to be a servant because a servant does not do that. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoking flax. You know, as you read the ministry of Jesus, his gentleness with people whose life had almost ebbed away, totally crushed by life's circumstances, was remarkable. The woman at the well, the lepers, the despised tax collectors, their dreams and hopes that are teetering on the very brink of extinction are not too far gone for, for him. And he can take that bruised reed and nurse it back to health. He can take that smoldering flax and breathe, into, breathe it into fire again. He can do that with you, with your dreams, with your brokenness. You know, in Isaiah's time, Israel are exactly like that bruised reed, like that smoking flax, teetering on the brink of extinction. The actual Israel and the ideal Israel are so far removed from each other that it must have seemed easier for them just to let the dream die for goodness sake, how is that ever going to become that? Well, in the person of this servant lies Israel's hope and redemption. He will not break the reed nor allow it to be broken. He will not extinguish the flax nor allow it to be extinguished. He is the means by which ultimately the actual will become the ideal. But he will not accomplish this purpose by being an irresistible conquering king but by being a suffering servant. Now, let me just finish, because we could look into that a little more, but let me finish by bringing this home and making it a little more personal for you and me. Because the servant songs are a description, in my view, as you read them with Christological spectacles, they, they, they are speaking of Jesus, his person and his ministry. They speak prophetically of the Messiah. But you and I, now stand called to be his servants. Israel were the servants, the corporate servants, and failed. The individual servant came, succeeded. He now passes the torch of servanthood to you and I. And he says to us, so send I you. In 1 John 4, 17, he says, as he is, so are we in this world. And when I see that, I see the pattern of these servant songs being taken off him and placed on me and placed on you. And they are a description. They become a description of the human being that loves God and seeks to become like him. Paul certainly understood it that way. 
In Acts chapter 13, verse 47, he's describing his own ministry and mission, and he does so in terms drawn straight out of Isaiah 42, the first servant song. And he says, we are a light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth in Acts 13. That fits so well with Isaiah 42.6. I will make you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light to the Gentiles. Paul understood that something of this servant song, though it is primarily embodied in Jesus Christ, now is his, now is mine, now is yours. Israel failed in their mission. The mission of the servant succeeded. Now the mission has been passed to you and I to partner with him in its completion to do the work in the power of his spirit, to be kind, to be gentle, to be patient, to be compassionate, to ensure that we don't break the bruised reed or extinguish the smoking flax. And in truth, we have not always done this well. Many times in the history of the church, we've looked much more like a conquering king than a suffering servant. And the irony is that we have been strident and aggressive and even violent in our attempt to bring the peaceful reign of the servant to earth. Often as we have sought to combat the dragon, whatever the cultural dragon happens to be, we have sought to confront it, and in confronting the dragon, we have become dragon-like. History shows that those who have sought to eliminate abusive political powers by the use of power have usually become as abusive as the system that they challenged. In the mid-17th century, Puritan, Puritan Christians gained control of England. And many assumed that since the rulers were now good and godly, for the most part, exactly, they, they were in fact that, the nation would now be healthy and good. But those of you who know about Oliver Cromwell's rule, ultimately, instead of liberating the nation, it brought the nation under a totalitarian dictatorship that stifled the human spirit and elicited much resentment toward Christians and toward their God. Some of you are old enough to remember the evangelical church finding itself losing ground in its cultural influence and authority in the 1980s turned to, to, turned to politics. In the U.S. it was called, of course, the moral majority. Using the same tactics that the liberal left used, they sought to regain the ground they had lost only to lose more. And I think we can learn from history that whenever the church has been in a position to wield power, it has gone backwards. As it increases in power, it decreases in moral authority. You cannot use power and be a servant at the same time. To use one is to betray the calling of the other. Jesus said, I'm not, I'm not shouting anybody down. I'm not trying to put them down. I'm not breaking a bruised reed. I'm not extinguishing a smoking flax. That is not how the kingdom comes. Much more could be said, but let me drive it home a little closer to home, if I may. I find it much easier to identify our historic corporate failures to function in this service spirit than I do to recognize where I personally might be violating it. I'm much happier to point out the power abuses of corporate companies and institutions than I am owning up to my own personal abusive use of words or ways to get what I want. And the reality is far too many families 
and probably families represented here, are blighted by bullying, aggressive, moody, manipulative people. Men, women, and children who play power games, who try to get power in a relationship so that they can maneuver and manipulate the way that they want things to work out. Now you say, but, but Don, I do it because I really want my kids to be good and godly. Well, listen, I'm telling you right now that manipulating them and maneuvering them and being powerful over them doesn't do it. And ultimately, it will elicit resentment. Jesus has laid out a pattern. He says, don't shout them down. Now, by all means, you have to lead and you're a parent, but how you do that is crucial. And just being a bully doesn't work. It betrays your calling to be a servant. Too often we fail to discern or recognize how far we have strayed from the spirit and methods of the one that we profess to follow. Jesus says, be a servant. Don't break the bruised reed. Don't extinguish the smoking flax. Don't shout them down. Graciously serve. I know that that could be misunderstood. And I know parentally there are times where, you know, we're in the push and shove of genuine relationships. I was talking about that before. But I want to tell you, being a bully, being moody, being manipulative, getting your own way in the family by pulling strings is not being a servant. And this servant song lays down a pattern, not just prophetically of how Jesus would function, but perhaps prophetically how you and I are to function in our intimate relationships. That corporately, we as the church do not shout down and be abusive to the the political groups, you know, to the LGBT people who would hate us and our stand. The answer in terms of trying to speak to that is not to be dragon-like in the same way that they seek to be to to us at times. Nightshear it was who said, be careful when fighting a dragon lest you become one. And I think in our zeal and our desire to see righteousness come, we fail to recognize the method by which it comes. He will make his law glorious The Torah will spread and he will see justice, that moral foundation to all of reality. But it comes through the ministry of suffering servants, not conquering kings. Your family doesn't need a conquering king. It needs a servant who's willing to suffer. The church doesn't need conquering kings. It needs servants who are willing to suffer. Let's not be like Israel, by the way, when called to repent in this kind of way. When I speak in this kind of way, it's easy for us to make excuses. That's exactly what Israel did. Hang on a minute. And they started blaming other people, including God. Well, you know, it's, it's mea culpa. It's me. In, in the Catholic Church, you know, I've been gone from the Catholic Church for 40 years now, but I still remember there's a place in the service where, as a congregation, we stand and we would, we would stand and we would go, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Mia culpa, it's me. It's me. Yeah, I can blame other people, but that, that's, that doesn't change anything. It leaves me without repentance, without hope. 
And God says, let me deal with you. You trust me working through your humble servant heart to touch whoever it is that you're trying to manipulate. Because your manipulation isn't working. Let's deal with you. And so we go, my fault. Near copper. Deal with me, Lord. Some of you will be thinking, I wish you'd get off Isaiah. This is way too personal and way too close. But you know what? As you read the scriptures, not only do you read them with Christological glasses, but, but you allow God to read you with his glasses and say, you know what? You see that? Let's deal with this. So let's respond as we call the worship team forward and uh, we re-engage and say, Lord, would you work in me? Would you work in me, Lord? Mea culpa, I'm, I'm the one at fault here. Would you work in me and change me? I think it was Tolstoy who talked about, you know, people wonder why, uh, you know, why the world can't be changed, but they never think that it begins with them. And I think God does want to change the world. He wants to change the world through suffering servants who first of all say, Lord, here am I. Here I stand, arms open wide. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.